My name is Tom Salta, and I am here today to um, give you what I'll call like a little boot camp crash course 101 on, um, on scoring interactive music or music for games. Um, so a quick uh, background on me. I've been composing in games for about 15 years, and prior to that I was, I was in the music industry for another 15 years. Do the math, I'm old. Um, so uh, I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of experience in different kinds of music and I'm really gonna share with you today a lot of things about my uh, composing workflow. The most commonly asked question I'm always asked uh, is, so what makes game music different? Um, and I think the best, quickest, easiest way to answer that simple question is really in, in pictures rather than talking about it. But traditional music, as we all know it, linear music, has the same beginning, middle, and end. That's pretty much it. That covers everything from songs to film to TV to anything that has the same beginning, middle, and end. Right? Right. Gay music is different. Game music is more like this. It's more nonlinear. Right? It can have the same beginning. It can have different beginnings, different middles, different endings, different lengths, looping back all over the place. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. All right, so as I said, we're going to go into my composing workflow. Um, this is really me sharing the basics of my own experience uh, and insights that I've learned over the years. And just for the sake of presentation, I've broken it into five steps. Concept and aesthetic, I like to call the R&D phase or sandboxing. Uh, defining your palette early and keeping it limited. Um, composing, testing, iteration, and then finalizing and mixing. That's pretty much the whole lifeline of music in this genre. Um, before we start, I really want to need you to understand that really the entire process is actually two separate things. There's being creative, and then there's being productive. And you have to do both, ideally. I always try to separate left and right brain stuff. I'm very bad at doing both at the same time as are, I think, most human beings. Uh, analytical thinking versus creative thinking. right? So you might hear me referencing that or organizing things that way in this talk, just so you kind of see where I'm coming from. All right, so let's get into harnessing creativity. Um, I've given another talk on the creative process, and there are two slides I just wanted to show you that before we jump into the meat of this, so you can better understand why I do the things uh, the way I do them. So this is sadly the way it is for most creatives whether they choose to admit it or not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, now, I made another little diagram. So explain, this is the way I like to schedule my projects. I don't care if it's two weeks, two months, or two years. But there's a creativity, there's the work, and there's the post-production. And I made this little line, which I found intriguing as I studied this more and more, not only my own experience, other people's experience. And I call it the creativity potential line. And the only reason I'm showing you this is it, it'll explain why I'm ordering things the way I order them. I find that the creativity, the potential for creativity, the best ideas, they always come at the beginning. 
They always come like when you first get the gig, when you first see their first you know, capture of the video game, you get excited, you get like a kid, right? At least I do. And that's where the creativity comes from. It's that stuff, that's the juice that makes the creativity. And then as the project goes on and on, that potential line goes down for various reasons. Because you get into the work. You have to grow up, I guess. You got deadlines, you got you know, criticisms, you got things, changes, revisions, whatever. So it's important to maximize this tendency and work with it within that creative workflow. All right, so into it. Number one, this is the first stage for me, concept and aesthetic development. I think the first bullet point here is the most important one, which is getting that signature sound, establishing the musical recipe. If you're gonna have value as a composer, I think that's mostly where your value will come from initially. It's like, I know when we hire that person that they're gonna like come up with this aesthetic, which is gonna be, we're gonna own this. This is the sound, right? So that's really, really important. And that doesn't come by accident. Um, another things during this part of the project, you're working with clients, ask for reference tracks. Ask from other games and movies. Um, get in your client's head. What gets your client excited, right? Because this is teamwork. You know, what inspired them? You know, ask for animatics and mock-ups and sketches and anything they got, just ask for it. Uh, do your research with their previous games in the series. What makes this franchise what it is? What's the sound? Um, are there any creative pillars of the project that you should discuss with the climate? You know, identify it. You know, this game is this and it's not that. You know, do's and don'ts, that kind of stuff. Really communicate. Talk about it. Get into it. Be, you know, be collaborative. That's what it's about. Okay? So on that first step, which I'll call, you know, establishing the recipe of the music, I like to say dipping the toe in the water, so to speak, um, one way I approach it is from musical brainstorming, or like to say sandboxing, getting back to our childlike nature. Um, that's really important. I think that's really where the magic happens. Um, I always hear, did, did anyone ever hear, you know, you know, you're all doing music or whatever, and, and you ever meet someone that says, oh, wow, yeah, you know, you're so creative, I'm not a creative person. How many people have ever heard that? Right, right, okay, I'm not a creative person. Now, have you ever been in kindergarten? Can you imagine in a sandbox and you go up to this little kid and you have that same conversation? Do you imagine a kindergartner saying to you, yeah, I'm not a very creative person? <laughs> of course not. You're, we're actually all creative, right? So it's about getting back to that, the essence, that childlike essence. So how do we do that? How do we do that when we're under deadlines and getting you know, money and pressure and expectations and all that? You know, it's a way you have to trick your brain into working the way it's meant to work. And for me, that's, for me, what does it for me, I guess, is just closing the door and, you know, going into my synths or my sound libraries and doing some patch surfing, right? Or, or sound mining, going through and checking out new sounds and going through and like, ooh, that's cool. And it just reminds me of just being a kid again. Like when I was in eighth grade, that's what I did. I got a synthesizer, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And just getting back into that, just connect with that part, all right? And I just capture random ideas as they come up, right? Um, and I get an idea, I save it, go on to the next thing, and I keep doing that over and over. That's how I dip my toe into the water at the beginning. 
All right. So I talked about you know at the beginning of the project, that's where you get your, your best ideas usually. I'm going to share with you some very specific exact sketches. Before this talk, I went into my archives and I, and I ripped out some reference art that I was given for Prince of Persia, uh, The Forgotten Sands. Now, I love Prince of Persia. I, 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 the, the Sands of Time was one of my, it's like my favorite Prince of Persia game. So I was really excited when this game was called Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands. I'm like, ooh, it's really close. It almost sounds like The Sands of Time. So anyway, so this is the artwork, some of the artwork that they gave me. And you know, along with some lengthy descriptions describing certain things and describing how you, know, you had this magical orb and there's like this, this Perry, which is like a little genie, and you know, giving me the, the lush landscape and showing me these big towers and, and all this kind of stuff. Hearing about like elevated cities in the clouds and I'm like, wow, you know, so cool, that, that initial inspiration. So these are just some initial ideas uh, that I did even before I really started the game. And I think, I think they're some of the better that I did or the best um, in, in, in the score. So just kind of get a sense how that music is kind of communicating these kind of visuals and ideas. So there's like the magic in the music with that. And that's like the melody of the little genie, the little fairy that is your companion. And the, the lushness communicated by all these different eclectic instruments coming together um, and bringing in the human voice. Okay, so here's another little idea along the same lines. Again, just initial inspirations. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit. Establishing the musical recipe, experimenting. During the process, when I was researching and networking and connecting with people who would be on my team, there was an instrumentalist who actually had a Roland keyboard um, from the Middle East. It was an Arab Roland keyboard. And it actually had a lot of pre-done Arabian beats in it. You know like the Casio where you do like Bossa Nova? Well, this had like the Arabian equivalent of that. I'm like, holy, you know? So I'm like sampled that stuff and I turned into Rex files and that's like from this like Casio, it's not, it's Roland, but anyway, that's the idea. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. So I, I dealt this whole library of beats and I'm like, a kid, kid in a sandbox. That's what it sounds like, right? And that became the foundation for the rest of the project. And it gave me confidence, it gave my client confidence and it was fun and I had themes and whatever, it went from there, okay? So that's the beginning. Oh, sorry, PowerPoint. Okay, um, now another thing, talking about communication, I said creative pillars. So here are the creative pillars of Prince of Persia, The Forgotten Sands. This is, they, the client gave this to me. This is really important stuff. 
You see like good on the top, evil on the bottom, human on the left, magical on the right. And there's certain themes that would show up in the game or areas that would be at different places on this graph. So the prince is, is more human and good and the princess, and the well of life is, is more magical than human, but still good. The peri is kind of neutral. You don't know if she's good or bad. You got the sorceress who's, who's, who's right down the middle as far as definitely bad, but in the middle between human and magical. Anyway, these are the things that also help inform the music. What does magic sound like? You know, what does good sound like? What does bad sound like in the context of this universe? Again, the pillars, all that is part of the recipe. Good to pay attention to that stuff up front because you don't want to change a recipe once you start cooking, you know? Anyway, all right, completely different. Um, switching gears, Idol. This is from uh, Killer Instinct season three. I'm going to take one character because every character had its own musical recipe. It was interesting. It was like, you know, we did eight characters at front. All eight had a, just like a different game, almost, as far as the style musically, all right? So um, I'm gonna share with you some literal, some reference music that I was given from the client, okay? So when it came to Idol, um, he wanted something that was like John Carpenter-inspired 80s-style horror music, movie music, okay? Um, heavy synth stuff. And unlike every other track in the entire game, no guitars on this one. No guitars. Now, if you know anything about Killer Instinct, that's a little hard to do in a fighting game. How do we make it live up? Because everything else in that game, I think every track, even Mick Gordon stuff, all, I mean, guitars, big time. So how do we capture that in here? So anyway, so here's some reference music that I was given. All right. Let's listen to the musical recipe. Let's reverse engineer this. I like that interval. Right? I would use that interval. I like that. Gritty analog sounding. All right, let's let's listen to thematic feels in this, right? Ooh. All right. Right? That's the kind of idea, right? So that's the inspiration. So I'm like, okay, that's awesome. This is right up my alley. So I was collaborating with my friend Clayton, AKA Cell Dweller. And uh, usually we work remotely, but for this one, I got in a plane and I went to his studio. And if anyone's ever seen his studio, you'd know why. Because he's got these like 360 almost of all um, modular, crazy synth laboratory stuff. And he has another room where he has all these analog keyboards. So anyway, he just got an OB6 and I'm like, oh, I want to get my hands on that one. So I went in the room, I closed the door, booted up Logic. I was patch surfing. And with that in my mind, looking at the character's picture on the screen, uh, I was just a little kid. And so I just came up with stuff like this. This is literally my first day just capturing synth sounds. All right? But you can start to hear how it takes uh, shape. Oh, no that's, no, that's the original. Wrong PowerPoint. OK, here we go. There's your interval, right? If we have more volume, that would be good if, if we do. Try and find that melody that works. 
So there's my little melody, and then I'll fast forward. Variation. You know, a lot of the stuff didn't make it, but there's your. You know what I mean? So all that kind of stuff. That's what we were playing around with. Okay. And now for something completely different. All right. Uh, Marty, this is where you can close your ears. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, okay, so now imagine, imagine this. this is something very, very different, something that had a bit of a strong identity already. Um, and um, this was an interesting challenge for, 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 for many reasons. Um, not the least of which is that this was the first time that the Halo franchise would create a top-down twin-stick shooter game based in the Halo universe. All right, so you know the things that I really loved about Halo that really inspired me initially is the idea that it was this first-person shooter, this vast, expansive landscapes, this deep, long plot, quiet moments, you know, just all this stuff, you know, realizations of things happening and you know twists in the plot and all this kind of stuff. And now you have a game which is completely different. It looks different. It's a top-down perspective. It's constant action and blah 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 blah. So um, fortunately, I did have the, the good fortune to be working on the uh, recreations of the original ingenious Halo scores by Marty O'Donnell um, and Michael Salvatore. So I, I had, it was a good education because, I mean, imagine, you know, transcribing anything note for note teaches you a lot about how it's constructed. It's like reverse engineering. You're learning note by note how it is, why, what sounds, you know, what makes it sound uh, Halo and what makes it different. Anyway, so how do I capture that while still feeling new and, and, and work in this kind of environment? Because I learned pretty quickly, even by taking some existing music and popping it in some of the initial visuals I got, it didn't work because this was a different context. But some of it did work. So I'm like, okay, what makes it work? What doesn't make it work? All right, this is all that beginning. So. Remember I told you I always create a, a bunch of ideas and sandbox that no one will ever hear? Well, I'm going to change that today. I'm going to let you hear some stuff. So um, a lot of these ideas never made it into the game, but some of them did. So this is one that kind of did, and this is the first version of it. So super simple, little me on a piano, just me just going and having fun, turning off the left side of my brain. Pay attention to the chord progression because it might come up later. using the pedal tone. Okay, can we put some synths in there? Just what, like, what would it... Melody. Thank you. 
And that was it. That was it. That was, that was one idea that kind of stuck, but it never came back in that form. But that was the beginning of it, right? All right, cool. So this is one of the first visuals that I was, that I was given. I'll, yeah, I'll definitely answer your questions, um, but we'll find, can you save it to the end or do you have to ask now? Okay, cool. Um, so this is one of the first visuals when I did get captures that, that I was given. Um, so you can see the context of where this music would have to function. Okay. Fast forward a little bit. So as you can see, it's, it's pretty busy. It's pretty busy. It's kind of like, you know, all the big battles in Halo put into one game flying from a banshee really high, you know? That's kind of the way I thought of it. And I'm like, okay, so how are we, <laughs> you know, darn it, I don't have those quiet moments and stuff like that, but whatever. Um, so now, of course, I did my share of all kinds of music, battle-oriented music, what you would expect, but there were some surprises along the way. And one thing that I really loved, again, about the, the ingenious work on the original Halo is, is the way, um, you know, Marty and, and Michael found ways to, to juxtapose music that you wouldn't expect in a battle scene. You know, something general and almost meditative. Um, and it just, it just created this magical effect in certain situations. It was just fantastic. So, you know, I was looking for opportunities to do that. And so here's an example of that thing. Remember you just heard with the chords? So those chords, I'm going to just change. I'm going to arpeggiate those chords. And I'm going to, now that I know that I'm dealing with like this elevated cliff side, I wanted to make it feel elevated and whatever and airy and spacious, but still capture that magic there. And, uh, and how does it fit with uh, all those sounds and grenades and guns and yelling? So here you go. Notice it stays out of the way of the sound effects for the most part. there you go. There's a little context for you about how those ideas are actually useful in the beginning. Okay, so moving on to step two, defining your palette early and keeping it limited. Um, so much time and energy is wasted searching for sounds and assembling tracks, especially these days. I mean, when I started, you know, you get, you have like two keyboards and you turn the knob and there you go. There, you know, your sounds are right there. Now, the worst thing that ever happened to me is having, you know, almost four ter no, over four terabytes of sound libraries. It's, it's paralyzing. It really is. You think, oh, it's creative freedom. No, it's not. It's paralysis, you know? Give me a box of three crayons over a thousand crayons any day. I'll get to work, 
much faster, right? So anyway, so templates. There's a lot of talk about templates. Uh, when speed is a factor, templates are a must. I mean, anyone will laugh at you in, t in TV and film if you don't use templates. They're like, yeah, that means you're not working, you know? Um, in games, I think a lot of that holds true. Um, I am a little bit of a rebel when it comes to templates. I take a slightly different approach, but in general, uh, I use the template method or a modular template method where I will kind of, you know, have predefined groups of sounds that I like from other projects or things like, these are my best piano sounds and these are my, and I'll, I import them all at once, you know. So I'm not always starting from scratch, scratch, but it saves so much time. Um, you know, especially if you go one project that's similar to another, or, you know, oh yeah, this, these are all great. Boom, templates, saves you a lot of time. Um, it lets you stay organized and focused. Um, you know, who's in the band? And Paul Lipson, when he gave this talk last year, he had that phrase, who's in the band? And I like that. It's identifying who's in your band. What does the band sound like? You know, what's the sound? What, who are the instruments? What is that? So that's really important. It helps allow for consistent signature sound. And that's really, really important. Right? Um, custom instruments. Do I use custom? Do I have to use custom instruments? You know, I mean, like things that no one else owns and stuff like that. You know, look, I don't want to get pretentious about this. You don't have to. I mean, some of my best work is I didn't have any custom instruments. I just spent a lot of time coming up with creative ways to use what I had, layering them, putting effects on them. You know, my first Atlas plug record, there was not one single custom instrument on that. Not one. But I spent a lot of time into layering and creating, you know, things, doing things in an unconventional way uh, and on most of my projects. That being said, I have uh, had the, the, the uh, fortune to be able to hire custom sound designers and create sound banks just for me for a particular project. It's great. It's great. But again, it helps me kind of nail into that signature sound that, based on what I want to do. Um, it gives the, the right brain more freedom later, so you can kind of keep on creating. And that's really what this is about. Um, you know, temp, the, the, there's pros and cons of templates, right? Pros, speed. Speed. That's the pro. To, uh, it saves a lot of time, all right? You don't have to recreate things from scratch. Some people have hundreds of tracks or thousands. Some crazy people do that, too. Um, What's the danger of template? You know, homogenization, I guess. Is that the word where everything starts sounding the same on everything that you do? Because, come on, let's face it, you have it right there. Why should I go searching for that other unique wave? I got my stuff right there. There's my go-to stuff, right? So what I try to do on, on every project that I do uh, is to start over or reconsider, reevaluate my template. You know, maybe there's a few sounds that are, you know, things that, yeah, there's my big bass drum. I love that one, you know or whatever, my low strings or whatever. But, uh, but usually I try to really customize as much as possible uh, for every project that I do. And it really helps uh, me keep that signature sound um, uh, benefit that I bring to everything, or I try to bring to everything I work on. Okay, so some quick uh, you know, right and left brain tips. Let's just fire through these really fast. Uh, right brain, you know, analytical thinking uh, for dealing with orchestral sounds for orchestral sounds. Okay, if you're going to deal with orchestral sounds, then you want to know what an orchestra sounds like. All right, so study music, listen to music, go see a live orchestra. It's important. 
you know, if you, if you see someone, you can, you can sniff out uh, an amateur when you hear like all these big blaring brass things and they're really soft behind the, the violins, you know? That won't happen in, in a live setting, you know? And, and, and even though we might not know that, you know, intellectually, we kind of know it subconsciously. It's a natural thing, you know? Um, so study music, listen, 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 listen. Study performance. Um, you want it to sound like people, not machines. So understand the limitations of real orchestral instruments. You know, you don't have to know that the flute, you know, the, uh, the flute's upper note is the most. It's always oh, a B flat. But you know, I, I don't know that stuff, but I instinctually I listen to it and I pay attention to it and I learn. You know, sometimes if you do enough sessions, you'll learn that trumpet players don't like to go up to a high D or whatever that is. Anyway, so uh, left brain tips for dealing with orchestral sounds. All right. Um, lay out the template like a, I'm sorry, I said analytical. The right brain is the creative, right? Okay, Left, these are the analytical tips. Uh, lay out the template like a conductor score. I think that's very useful, especially if you read music. I don't generally rely on scores and stuff like that, so I kind of cheat. But I do find that it is better to be consistent where I put my high, you know, my high strings, my high brass, and I organize it. But it's, this has been done. You don't have to refigure this stuff out. If you want, go look at a conductor score and organize your stuff that way. Um, you know, cover the, all the important articulations um, that you're going to use. You know, I mean, you don't have to use all every possible articulation, but make sure you cover the ones that are important. Um, organize. Uh, I think organization is really important. You know, some people say, well, do I use key commands or do you use, you know, different, different tracks for each articulation? I personally like different tracks. I don't like key switching. That's just me. You know, you don't have to uh, do that. Um, you can do whatever is comfortable for you. I just kind of like being able to switch tracks. There's my staccato strings. I don't like key switches because then I, the chasing is a nightmare and then it's like, oh, now it's the staccato and I don't want, I want the, it gets a little nutty. So I kind of just like separating things out. But there's no one way to do it. Just be aware of it. Uh, and organize, uh, use color coding, use icons, whatever. When you start dealing with that much stuff, if you're anything like me, um, looking at tons of information all at once is very fatiguing. And I don't want to be fatigued. I want to kind of be, last as long as I can every day uh, being fresh and energetic. All right, so, well, okay, so now more creative tips for dealing with non-orchestral sounds. Anything that's not an orchestral sound, um, since are being the obvious thing. Uh, be aware of overused presets, right? So uh, if you've heard that sound show up in everywhere else, don't use it or camouflage it or change it or customize it. You know, again, it's like um, you just go to patch one on whatever and everyone does that, that's not gonna help you. And it's not gonna help you get a signature sound, certainly, because everyone else is using the same sound too. So just be aware of overused presets. Try to be original, um, and don't be scared to break the rules. Look, I don't like spending four, three hours tweaking a, uh, a sound. I don't. Some people love that. Keeps them up at night. They do that instead of Netflix, and that's fantastic. <laughs> but for me, I don't like spending that much time. You know, I'll tweak a little bit, boom, save a difference, and, and done. Um, so spend, it, it, everyone's different. Everyone's different. But if you're going to use non-orchestral sounds, there's no excuse not to be original because the sky's the limit. You can do anything you want. Anything. Anything. Really. Okay? So, um, 
left brain tips for dealing with non-orchestral sounds. This is more of the, the analytical thing. Um, these are some things that I like to do myself. Um, organized by instrument type. Um, I personally like um, organizing things into, into folders or track stacks, whatever program you're using. Um, so if it's like, you know, basses, bass sounds, um, or, you know, sustainy pads or airy pads or whatever it is. I kind of like organizing them by instrument types. Some people, you might want to think about frequency, you know, the high stuff and the low stuff, whatever. Um, some people like to organize things by plugins, you know, put all my heaviosity stuff here and all my, you know, sound toys. Well, no, that's just effects. But you know what I'm saying. Um, whatever works for you, however you like to think. But be organized about it. So you don't, again, you don't want to spend all day like, where is that thing? And you're going down 100 tracks and zooming in and out. I mean, I can't do that anymore, obviously, right? Organized by function, pulses, bass, whatever. There's a lot of ways to organize. Just consider being organized, OK? Um, so it'll give your right brain uh, more freedom. All right, let's go into the next step. Composing. Wow, it took that long to start composing? Whew. All right. Um, so theme and variation, this is really what it comes down to. Make it memorable. What, what's the hook? A strong theme hap equals a happy composer and a happy client. Um, a strong theme, if you're pitching, can get you the job. It really can. And you know, when I say themes, I'm, I'm, I'm using that term very broadly. All right, I'm not just saying that it's like, you know, the typical da -ba -da -bum, bum -ba -da theme, right? You know, Hans Zimmer doesn't generally do these kind of memorable like themes that you whistle necessarily, but man, he knows how to take a chord progression and work it, and it becomes very hooky, right? Inception, like you don't hear people singing Inception, but man, it's hooky, right? So again, I'm using, I'm talking about the hook, that memorable thing that you recognize, all right? It could be a theme, it could be a hook, motif, whatever it is, um, but that's really what happens because then once you have that, you can turn your two minutes into 20 minutes. It's, ama it's amazing how, how you can sneak that in everywhere. And it's really useful. It's wonderful. It brings continuity to the whole experience. So theme and variation, really, really important. Um, modulation. Don't forget about your old friend modulation. Modulation uh, lets you be very, very flexible. It relieves repetition, which is really good in game music because we deal with a lot of things over and over and looping and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a great way to relieve repetition. It, create, it can create movement and forward motion. I sense we get a sense we're progressing. All we did is we just took the same thing and modulated it, right? Um, it can be used uh, to highlight a change in a, in a state. I, you know, I'll play you an example of that in Killer Instinct. You know, we just, when we go to the, the combo, which is you're dominating your player, we modulate, boom, you know, up a third or whatever it was. And it works, it's like, wow, it highlights it. it you know, so it's, it's a tool. It's a tool. Keep it in mind. Um, rhythmic variation. I love percussion. I'm, I'm big into creating and spending, a lot, I spend a lot more time than most on my percussion tracks. And uh, so I enjoy the detail in that and the layering and the, and the technique and the flexibility of it. Um, it also relieves repetition. And, and quite frankly, um, you don't think of it necessarily, but it can be used to affect emotion. I use percussion all the time to affect emotion. What? So, you know, for example, if, you, if you're in a battle scene and, you know, you have a set beat that's like 
It's like this predictable plotting, powerful, yes, you're not going to get in my way kind of thing. But if you do the same thing and you change it and you make it unpredictable, you don't know where the one is. It keeps you, it makes you feel off balance. It makes you feel out of control. It makes you like, I don't know where things are coming from. Just like that, it can be used to affect our perception. I do that all the time. Um, orchestration. Very important aspect as well. Make sure the ranges are realistic. <laughs> okay, pay a little attention to that. Just because your sample goes all the way up to the top of the keyboard doesn't mean the human being would do that. And it doesn't even matter if it's going to be recorded live or not. I mean, seriously, some things just sound bad out of their ranges. Some things sound pretty darn good. I have to say, I do get pissed sometimes. Like, damn it, come on, let's make the cello really low. Who cares it doesn't go down there, you know? So I end up trying to resample it and make my own. But, but keep it in mind. Do it, do it consciously. Um, and you know, another orchestration technique. Now I'm not, you know, super virtuoso orchestrator, you know, PhD. But I will tell you that I've learned a few things and pretty basic, and they're very useful. You don't need to go to school for this. If you have like a section and you're doing orchestration and it has a bunch of sustained strings and like staccato brass. A good natural way to change that up is to reverse it, right? So instead of going to sustainy strings, go to the staccato strings and go to the sustainy brass, right? My point is, pay attention to orchestration. It's your friend. It could be used, and it's all part of the composition pro uh, process. That's just one quick little silly example that just came to mind. Um, uh, virtualization and and production. Uh, use your articulations, velocities, dynamics. Um, Tempo mapping, all these things are important. Uh, it, it's the difference between a, a realistic sounding virtual orchestration and a computerized sounding one. All right? You can still use quantizing without it sounding like a computer if you know if you do it right. Some things sound good tight, some things don't sound good tight. Just again, it really comes from listening and learning and analyzing. But you know, anyone who's ever heard my music, it's like tight. You know, I, I don't know if it's the East Coast in me, but whatever. It's like boom, it's right on that beat. But it's still, you know, I, I do that consciously and it still breathes. It still has that enough, it has as much humanness as I want in it. All right. Um, and then uh, the last step, production and mix. I didn't start mixing out all my own stuff. I didn't start being an expert engineer. Um, but you got to listen and learn. And, and it's across the whole spectrum. I think one of the most difficult things for people to, to, to learn is, is you know, bass management. They don't know what to do with the low end. You know? uh, learn, listen and learn. Certainly get a, a good set of speakers um, and headphones and maybe a spectrum analyzer, whatever it is. But the point is, pay attention to this stuff. Um, don't, get on, don't get in over your head. A lot of times, if you're, if you're just starting out and you don't have 20 years of experience with all this, um, don't be too ambitious. It's better to, to, to be less ambitious with the sounds that you use in the production like I'm, uh, and, and make that sound good than to say, no, I'm going to go ahead and it's gonna, you know, I'm going to throw in 30 different things because I want it to be like this big epic movie trailer. And it just sounds like junk because you, know, you, don't have, you don't have the sounds, you don't have the experience, you don't know how to mix it, you, you know, whatever it is. So um, it's important to keep, be mindful and be honest with yourself. Um, Again, it's better to be less ambitious and make it sound great. Uh, and then uh, lastly, we can get more into this uh, in the next talk, which is considering the loop 
uh, should be unnoticeable. That's the point, right? Uh, we'll discuss that a little bit later. All right, so uh, moving on, moving on, moving on. Uh, let's see, I am 10 minutes behind schedule. Okay, so I'm gonna give you a quick examples. Um, I'm gonna, gonna use some of the things we talked about. So let's just, simple, 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 simple stuff. Ghost Recon, Advanced Warfighter 2, well, going way back. Um, what was interesting about this and the first Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter is we decided to use a simple, simple technique uh, where um, the different acts in the game, acts one, two, and three, uh, all used exactly the same tempo and keys for each of the sections. There was three levels of, of intensity, low, medium, high, and everyone started, like the low was in the key of, I think, G, the medium was in the key of A, and the high was in the key of B, right? I think so, it was like, just like that. Um, and what this enabled us to do is mix and match. We could mix and match from different, even go back to some of the old stuff from the other games and it all was very cohesive. So listen to how, just a simple example of uh, some music from the game. So this is like, and remember modulation equals flexibility, right? Right, and it's just it keep going and new things would come in and whatever, that's fine. So when you get up to the next thing, then you get into this. You know where this is going, and then it gets into Your theme maybe comes in. You know, and it was it was very effective. Um, I didn't have my hands in the implementation of the games. You know, I'm, I was a freelancer. They would I'd be firing my music over the you know as as Paul Lipson likes the asset cannon. Um, you know, just firing. So, so what this is, I kind of was giving them a construction kit so they can kind of work with this. And it worked really well. It worked really well in the game. Um, I don't think I have really time to kind of uh, go into this. I'll have to just maybe give one or two examples. Um, Ghost Recon Future Soldier, right? So uh, I was tasked with this one thing where there's this very evil warped Russian villain thing going on, right? And they want it to be this very orchestral, I don't know if you want to say bar talk or whatever. I don't know. But anyways, it's a very dissonant thing, and, and this is the theme. So listen to this theme. This is where it was all going. And then a few little ways that I kind of worked around it in different styles of music and whatever. All right, so this is their nemesis theme, right? Modulation, right? Variation. Anyway, it's it's a little kooky. Oops, sorry. All right, so 
But the rest of it is future soldiers. That doesn't sound very futuristic. So, but listen, listen to this. So this is leading up to that. This is an area. There was a church, and this is the church approach. There's that theme. It's in there. See, the people never heard that yet. This didn't happen yet, but we kind of feed it. We foreshadow it. That's why it's good to have your themes up front, because you can use them. All right, okay. Go to another, entering the village. Tonal rhythmic variation, theme's still in there. I'm gonna fast forward. Right? There's a modulation, I just cut it. Um, the marketplace. This is very, very different. Big shout out to Brian Trifon in that one. He helped bring in some of the the dubstep uh, elements and things like that. Um, and then, you know, it gets in and then the, the craziest of them all, remember I said I use rhythm and stuff to, to be, uh, create chaos. Um, so this is a perfect thing where you retreat, they're like, this guy, the, the enemy is too overwhelming, we're running retreat. So. I mean, it's frantic. It's, it's like that theme is echoing in these people's minds, like, oh my God, what did I just see? That's the idea in the music, you know? So yeah, using those themes, using the variation, using all the, the different techniques, and it's, it could be very, very effective. Uh, I'll skip that. Um, all right, so. Another completely different example, going back to Killer Instinct. Listen to how um, you can tell where the, where the combo state is when you hear this modulation. The combo state is when, again, you're dominating your player. So it's like the most triumphant of all. So this is back to that Idol character, remember we were playing around with? This is just a capture they did of just the music only without all the sound effects. <laughs> There's your chorus. Modulates back down. So that's how we were able to kind of use it, you know, planning out complementary keys and things like that that made it work in a nonlinear kind of format. All right, so um, I know I have five minutes. See, perfect. Got the five on the paper. All right, good. So um, the, uh, the testing and iterating, step number four. I'm gonna rocket through this uh, fast, but doesn't mean it's not important. Really, it comes down to, does it work? 
This is where you really have to rely on communicating with your client. If you're, if you're like a freelancer like me and you're not working in the thing, you gotta work with them, help them help you. Ask them for captures, does it work? Are there any compositional or technical issues? How could it be more effective? I'm dealing with this right now, right Mark? Um, where we're communicating with the client, we're doing some testing, we're realizing, oh wait, when it switches from, from this state to the combat state, it's, it's too abrupt. How do we work on that transition? Testing and iteration, you wanna leave time for that. It's important, it makes it better. It makes it better. We'll talk more about implementation in the next talk. How could it be more effective, all right? This is why I'm saying we're getting more into the, to, to the analytical side of things, but it's important, it's all part of the process. And then the last one is finalizing and mixing. Um, look, it, this might be controversial to say, but I, I always suggest learn how to mix your own stuff. Um, or be prepared to team up with someone or pay someone who can. Um, there's a lot of advantages to being able to mix your own stuff, at least to a, a degree that's good enough. Um, because one, you can turn things around really fast. If a client says, oh yeah, this is, could you just adjust the, the you know, the, the volume of the drums, or the, 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 you can say, yeah, lower the fader, bounce, done. As opposed to like, oh, you know, can you do this? Oh, I could do it tomorrow morning. You know what I mean? There, it, it's a speed thing, so it's good to be able to mix your own stuff, uh, and, and it comes with practice, and there's so many resources out there to learn, and just listen, listen, listen and learn. Um, uh, and that's, yeah, that's it. So um, that's the end of this. Uh, are there any questions? Yes, you had your question. Sure. Syncopation? Yeah, I mean, um, depending on the, what kind of melody it is, I guess, or the style of music, sometimes syncopation is awesome. Um, some, you know, it can, it, it, it can, it's another tool. If it's appropriate, great, you know? I don't have any hard rules about it, though. Yeah, so you see this, this shirt here? It says musical theory cheat sheet. See, this, that's, I don't know. I don't know. I use the cheat sheet. Um, no, I, uh, honestly, I, I, I don't know that. I, uh, that's not the kind of composer I am. I don't say, well, I went from the one to the six and back to the dominant and the thing. You know, a lot of people could do that, and that's awesome. I'm very jealous. Uh, I don't think about it that way. I find, at least for me, if I get more that, that way, I think I get caught into the, doing it the right way and the rules. Um, for me, it's just I feel my way around. I, I tell you, here's a simple technique. You know how to create cool chords and voice leading? Put your hands on a keyboard you know, and move your fingers like to neighboring keys. I, I'm not trying to, I, I'm serious, I'm literally. That's how you create cool accidents and cool kind of chords. It's like, ooh, move the pinky there. And I mean, that's the way I do it, you know? You don't need to know what you're doing before you do it. I mean, it's nice to know after, like, oh, well, of course, now this, that makes sense because it's this and it's complimentary and, you know, but I've had so many people go, oh, wow, that was really good. Similar to what you're doing. Uh, that was great how you used the dominant of this and the sustained six and the seven, the 13th chord. Wow, I never go to the 13th chord. I'm like, you know, I'm like deer in the headlights. I'm like. <laughs> It sounded good, you know, so I, I don't know. But anyway, I apologize. Yeah, I just want to give some other people a chance. Yes? Uh, when creating 
Yeah, and, and, and it changes for the different types of stuff. So really quickly, if it's like a catchy melody or something more pop or sing-songy, I usually do better, believe it or not, walking around, sometimes outside. I use, it, really, you know, uh, that can work for uh, um, catchy tunes and things like that. Um, sometimes uh, if it's more of a thematic, a movie thing, um, man, it's just the grind. You know, sometimes I'll sit in that chair all damn day trying to come up with that melody and, and, and it just comes together in the last, you know, after I've been there for five hours, I'm like, damn it, there it is, you know. Um, but it's, 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 it's uh, just um, focusing, uh, just getting out of the way and just like having a little fun with it, you know. Um, feel your way around, sometimes stepping away and listening to other things and coming back. It's really about actively tricking your brain to to not think, because when it comes to melodies and stuff like that, I find if you've planned them out too much, it just sounds generic and, and ineffective. Uh, there was a question, yes? Was something uh, for him that's really multi-dimensional, like uh, Halo, where one minute you'll have like, the, the Halo series, where yes. one minute you'll have like um, flyers, yeah. really serene moments, and the next you'll have yeah. battle music. Yeah. Do you um, have to, do you like to have um, uh, different templates depending on the theme Well, again, I'm not really much into the templates per se, um, but you usually, um, I'll, I'll, if I have a template or, you know, these are my evolving set of tracks and sounds that I'm using for this project, then I'll usually keep adding to it and then save and open that and build it. So by the time I'm done, I have this thing that has like, yeah, there's my choir sound and there's my this. I like having it all on hand because why? Because then it opens it up to serendipity, then it opens it up to like, oh, maybe I can use a choir in this. I didn't think about that. You know, I don't, uh, who says you can't use a serene choir in a battle track, right? So I like to, you know, I mean, th that's it. So I, I do generally like to have that stuff always available, you know, so that's why the template thing is, it can be useful, even if it's custom. Yeah, yeah, especially since I'm not a sound designer. So, you know, for example, if I'm doing film trailer or, or you know, even things in games that have sound design-y things. I, I like sound design. I like putting sound effect-y stuff into my music, too. It, it, it sneaks in there. If, if I'm dealing with some underground, bug-infested area, you know, I'll put in sounds that are like, you know, or whatever. Like, I, I, I use that. It's it's part, you know, sounds are music, too, in a way, right? So it, it, it so... Again, I, I just kind of have it organized, though. I'll probably have that in a folder at the bottom, like, you know, sound effects or risers or hits or, you know, whatever it is, you know, textures. That's it. I just keep it organized, and, but it's all there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, great, great uh, uh, question. Um, so what I do for that is if I can get a capture of the game, uh, I will play it in the background. I'll put it on a QuickTime movie on loop, and I'll compose over that sometimes. You know, and then if it gets really annoying and you know, like, okay, I got it, I don't need to keep hearing it, I'll turn it off. But for the most part, I kind of keep that on, and it forces me. One, it kind of helps me not focus on what I'm doing. <laughs> it actually, you know, which is good, like actively not focusing, and it, it gives me a distraction so that my right brain could just be creative and like, you know, and then it helps you see what sticks out and what clutters up. 
So it's really good. And if you can't do that, well, have law. They didn't give me a capture. Like when I was doing Hawks, Hawks was all about jet planes. You know, <laughs> they didn't have any. They gave me an Excel document. That's what I had to create a score from, an Excel document. Battle one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Tension, one, two, three. I mean, it was so dry and coder friendly. Um, and so, so what I did was, I'm like, okay, it's about jet engine, uh, jet planes. I said, so I went out and I found like some other video game, and and I created my own video, and I and I put jet sounds over it, and I just looped it. It was like. And it was really helpful. It was really helpful just having that noise in the background and um, to anticipate what would work and what would not work. You know, it enabled me to avoid, like, you'll never hear these little things in there. Don't bother with it. So yeah, that's my technique. And that's one advantage sometimes that film people and TV people have is like they're scoring to the picture. Yeah, wow, what a concept. You know, you know when the person's going to talk and say something, and you can lead up to it. What? You know, so in games you can't do that. So I try to uh, uh, create that opportunity as much as I can by putting it into context as early as I can, right? And do we have time for one more question? Yes, in the back. Oh, great. Um, so it's, I think a composer, uh, an effective composer uh, is really good at communicating and especially helping them help you. So I, I've, you know, our job is not to show the, the client how ingenious we are and how much we know over them and that they should shut up. Um, really, our job is to, to legitimately respect their wishes and what they, their, their vision and, and to meet them where they're at and work with them and figure it out. And if there's, if there's a moment to kind of explain it or in, in ways that, that a non-musician can understand, I, I embrace that. It's really great. It's really great. And I think your clients will appreciate you for it. And it's a good exercise to be talking to people like that. I, I, I speak to people who know more than I do musically, and I speak to plenty of people that don't. You know, um, And it's important to just communicate in a way they can understand. That, that's really all it comes down to. Just be flexible, you know? People love to work with, they, they, they don't, they, they'll take someone who's a pleasure to work with over a super genius, right? <laughs> take it from me, take it, I'm, so anyway. All right, so, um, all right, good. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Thank you very much. <laughs>